Welcome everyone to Drisha's full programming. This is the second part of a three-part course on what can we learn about God from the image of God in us by Rabbi Dr. Samuel Liebens. And without delay, I'll turn this uh, to you, Dr. Liebens. Hello. Uh, so you can see my you can see my slide. Yes. Okay. Yes. Good. So I'm gonna I'm gonna jump straight in because we have a lot to to uh, um, cover. And my hope is that those who weren't able to make the first class will uh, over time be able to reconstruct some of what I said in the first class. But this is, of course, the second of, of a series of three. And the question we're asking, really the question we're asking is whether God is a person. And um, I'm linking this to the question of uh, our being in the image of God. So, so the Torah, obviously, Famously, the book of Genesis in the first chapter describes um, the creation of, of the human, uh, of Adam and Eve, as being in the image of God. So there's something that we have in, in common with God. And, and the question that, that I wanted to um, um, explore was whether that thing we have in common with God is personhood. And the reason I wanted to explore that, I mean, I'm, I'm interested, uh, but it's a suggestion of, of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Um, and the question is, uh, does, that have, does that really have roots uh, in the Jewish tradition or not? And what we were looking at last week was Maimonides. And in the Maimonidean theology, uh, it's very clear that God is not a person. Um, so let's do a little bit of recapping and a little bit of, uh, uh, of, of of moving forward even as we summarize. So what we learned last week is that according to the Rambam, according to Maimonides, we can't really say anything about God. And anything we say about God is going to be more or less false because God transcends all concepts. Um, when we say that we're created in God's image, according to the Rambam, what we're really saying is that we humans have the power of intellectual perception and that this is somehow analogous to God's intellect. It's not really the same because we are in no ways uh, identical. And in fact, we're no ways similar really to God, but there's some sort of analogy we can somehow bring to bear um, between uh, our ability to to perceive things purely intellectually, without our eyes, without our ears, without any other senses. You close your eyes and you can figure out all sorts of truths. I don't know about triangles, if you're into trigonometry and Pythagoras. Um, you can figure out all sorts of things without leaving the comfort of your armchair. Uh, and you do that through intellectual perception. And the fact that you can do that is what makes you godly, according to Maimonides. And in fact, what we do when we intellect, uh, to, to use this word as a verb, when we are using our minds to discover truths, what we're really doing is we are becoming a receptacle to broadcasts from God. So God is kind of always broadcasting his wisdom and it overflows into us human beings. Now, the greatest form of reception of such overflow is called prophecy. But even when you just have a thought, you are receiving uh, some sort of broadcast from on high. So when you do geometry or, or, or any other type of purely intellectual apprehension, you are plugging into God. So that's also partly why for the Rambam, um, it makes sense to say that Selem Elohim, we're in the image of God, uh, really means um, we have the power to intellect because not only is our intellect analogous to God, but to his, to God's intellect, but also when we use our intellect, we more or less bring ourselves into union with God. We at least pick up on, on the, uh, the wisdom that overflows from God. In fact, in chapter two of the guide, so in chapter one of the guide to the perplex, Maimonides says this stuff about our intelligence being what renders us in the image of God. In chapter two of the guide, he goes through this really difficult, but really brilliant 
rereading of the story of the, of the Garden of Eden, um, the question that he grapples with uh, in that chapter is this. He says, hold on a minute. We eat the fruit. You know the story. Eve was convinced by the snake to eat the fruit, and then we ate the fruit. And then all of a sudden, we had knowledge of good and bad. Remember, it was the tree of knowledge of good and bad. But surely knowledge of good and bad is like a really good thing to have. Surely that's partly why we're in the image of God, because we, Ke'ilu, so to speak, like God, are ethical beings, sensitive to right and wrong. So surely eating the fruit actually made us closer to the image of God. Uh, why do we call this the fall of man? In fact, it was... That was really how we, we elevated ourselves. And the Rambam says, no, that reading gets things altogether wrong. Now, it's very controversial exactly how to read this, and I'm going to unabashedly prejudice my reading over multiple different readings of the second chapter of the guide. But as I understand it, this is what Maimonides says. He says, before we ate from the fruit, we were purely intellectual beings. And therefore, the only things that mattered to us were truth and falsehood. And this means there was almost no room for ethics. There was some room for ethics, I think. For instance, it was obviously wrong to disobey the word of God. And that type of obviousness um, would strike even a pure intellect. But a lot of the ethical life a lot of it, if not all of it, has to do with pleasure and pain. You know, as, as the utilitarians believe, a good action is one that maximizes pleasure. A bad action is one that, um, that increases suffering. So pleasure and suffering are certainly um, involved in the ethical life. And also the ethical life if you want to know what is the best thing to do right now, there's lots and lots and lots of contingent variables. Well, it depends. How will this person react to how you acted? How will that person react to how you acted? How will your motives be read by other people? There's so many variables. And those variables are kind of up to chance to a certain extent. And therefore, you can't prove beforehand using some kind of algorithm, some kind of a mathematical formula. You can't prove beforehand which actions are the best ones to perform in any given situation. And what you and I do as human beings, we kind of guess a bit, but guessing isn't the action of the pure intellect, right? Guessing is something more lowly than the pure intellect. And human beings, before they ate from the um, fruit, they had no pleasure and pain. Or if they did, it, it, it mattered to them very, very little. The only pleasure they knew of was the pure pleasure of knowing the truth. And the only discomfort they knew of was the pure discomfort of ignorance, right? They were, they were purely intellectual beings. And then they eat from the fruit. And all of a sudden, they become beings with passions as well as intellect. And this was a great devolution according to Maimonides, they became infected by emotion. And all of a sudden they become slaves to physical desires and they want to avoid physical pains. And it's only at that point that the full gamut of the ethical life is activated because now we're living in a world of pains and pleasures and we have to think about how to maximize pleasure, how to minimize pain. Um, and we have to worry about what other people's opinions are and how other people are going to experience things, whether they're going to find our interactions pleasurable or painful. And it's good, and so, so before we ate from the fruit, we basically only had truth and falsehood because we were basically purely intellectual beings. After we ate from the fruit, we were lesser beings. We had truth and falsehood, but we also had goodness and badness, pleasure and pain. Uh, boo and hurrah, right? Uh, we had those kind of evaluative, evaluative reactions. Um, and that, for the Rambam, was a devolution. So you can see already, he thinks emotions are a pretty bad thing. 
we are worse off for being emotional beings. Prelapsarian man, mankind before the fall, um, was completely uh, unemotional. Okay, so what I'm going to do now is just briefly um, characterize a doctrine known as classical theism and to show you um, how the Rambam falls into that camp. Um, and in order to do that, I'm going to be borrowing from uh, uh, the work of a friend of mine, um, a really lovely uh, um, book called God and Emotion by my friend Ryan Mullins. Um, it's an introductory book. You can get it uh, as a Cambridge paperback. I think it shouldn't even be all that expensive because it's very, very short. Uh, anyway, um, he says, on classical theism, it is assumed that to possess potentiality implies mutability, right? If you have a potential, like for instance, I could be a dentist. My dad was a dentist and my grandpa was a dentist. I could be a dentist. Um, it's, I'm unlikely to retrain this late on, but you know, I have that potential. If you have potential, that means you are changeable because change is just the process of, of bringing a potential in, out into actuality, right? But classical theism rules out any kind of change in God because God is purely actual. So a simple God, because God doesn't need to change because in, at any moment, at any given moment, God has everything he needs to have. He's self-sufficient. So since he doesn't need to change, he doesn't change. And if he doesn't change, and if change is inapplicable to him, he doesn't have potential. He's purely actual. So this simple God must be purely actual. The claim that God is pure actuality and simple has further entailments. It entails that all of God's actions are identical to one another, such that there is only one divine act, right? Because we can't make distinctions in God at all. Further, this one divine act is identical to the divine substance. Let me put this in clearer language. God is a perfect being who does one thing and one thing only. He overflows because, because he's so powerful and perfect, um, he overflows. And that overflow uh, causes the universe that we live in to be, and it causes the universe we live in to have the properties it does, and it causes the universe we live in to be governed in the way that it is. And you can see this directly in the Rambam's words. Um, this is from uh, the guide Chelek uh, Bet from the second, uh, uh, um, the second volume of the Guide to the Perplexed, um, Proposition uh, 16. This is his fourth argument for the existence of God. Uh, Maimonides. He says, this is likewise a well-known philosophical argument. He says, we constantly see things passing from a state of potentiality to that of actuality. So I've already lit the Hanukkah candles this evening and I saw a match go from not being on fire to being on fire. It held the potential uh, inside it and I saw that transformation. But in every such case of transformation from potential to actual, uh, there is for that transition of a thing, an agent separate from it. You know, if you want to cause potential to come into actuality, you need an agent, somebody who makes it happen. In this case, I was the person who made it happen. I released the potential fire in that match through my actions. And it is likewise clear that the agent has also passed from potentiality to actuality because I changed. I wasn't always striking a match. I was a potential match striker and then I became an actual match striker, right? So it has at first been potential because it could not be actual owing to some obstacle contained in itself or on account of the absence of a certain relation between itself and the object of its action. So for a long time, I was a potential match strike striker for various external reasons without actually striking a match. And I became an actual agent as soon as that relation was present. As soon as everything fell into place, I changed and I became a match striker. And then the match changed and it became inflamed. Now, whichever cause be assumed, an agent is again necessary. So what caused me to become a match striker? You get another cause and another cause and another cause and another cause. And 
this thing has to end somewhere, otherwise nothing would ever have happened. Okay, that's the basic idea. Now the cause itself can't contain any potential because if it did, right, you'd need another cause to be the thing that caused God's potential to become actual. So the God of the cosmological argument, the God of this fourth argument in the second section of the Guide to the Perplexed is a God who is pure actuality, a God with no potential. Okay. Uh, another thing you could say uh, about classical theism is that God's knowledge is in no way based on a perception of the universe. God doesn't have to leave his armchair to figure out what we guys are talking about today. Right, because if that was the case, then we would be changing him. As I say these words, God comes to know that I'm saying these words. Well, that means I'm affecting God's knowledge. No, 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 no. The classical uh, theist would consider perceptual knowledge a deficiency because it would make God's knowledge dependent on creation. Instead, classical theists affirm that God knows the truth values of all propositions through a single introspective act. This is very mysterious, but the basic idea is somehow because God is the cause of everything, he just has to inspect himself. And by inspecting himself, he comes to know all things. So he never has to kind of take a magnifying glass and look at us and find out what we're doing. And we don't affect his knowledge. He, he causes himself to know all things by looking only at himself. So in fact, the Rambam goes to great length. I'm gonna just use a summary here of Seymour Feldman. Um, the Rambam goes to great lengths to distinguish between human and divine knowledge. And he says there's five ways in which our knowledge is different to God's knowledge. The first is that although God knows many things, God knows all of these things in such a way that he somehow only knows one thing. Because if you, if you say that God knows two things, then you've put division in God again. And they're so bent upon God's unity being completely unadulterated. God, God has to know only one thing. In a sense, you and I know more because we know loads of things. I know what the capital of France is. I know what the capital of Italy is. I know what the capital of, of Brussels is. I know what the capital of the United States is as long as there is a United States. Now, um, um, I know all those things. And those are all items, individual items of knowledge, but God only knows one thing. Somehow, however, by knowing this thing, he actually knows all things, <laughs> okay? So this is a big difference between our knowledge and God's knowledge. Another thing that the Maimonides was keen on is that God's knowledge encompasses non-existent things. Why? Well, God knows the future. The future hasn't happened yet. The future doesn't exist and God knows it anyway. But we, we only know things which actually exist, which actually are. Two. God's knowledge ranges over infinite classes. He knows all the numbers. He knows all the even numbers, all the odd numbers. He knows, he knows an infinite number of things. And we, our knowledge is, is always going to be finite. Four, it's eternal and mutable, even though it includes temporal facts. So God knows that I would be giving this class on what is for me the fourth night of Hanukkah. I just had to check. Um, what, what is for me the fourth night of Hanukkah. God, God knows that. However, God's knowledge doesn't change. He always knew that, right? We came to know it, okay? But God's knowledge, even though God knows things that are about the calendar and he knows things that are about time, he knows every change that occurs in our changeable universe. He doesn't undergo change. You and I would change by coming to know things that are, that are temporal like that. Um, and the fifth thing is, even though God knows future events, his knowledge doesn't stop them from being contingent. So you might look, if I knew for sure what Nissan Hershkovitz was going to be eating for breakfast tomorrow, and I knew it, I actually, it's actually knowledge, not just a, a good educated guess, knowledge. Then if I knew it, then it must already be a fact what Nissan Hershkovitz is going to eat for breakfast tomorrow. And therefore he wouldn't have any ability to change his mind because my, if I had knowledge before Nissan acted, then my knowledge would somehow necessitate that Nissan acted in the way that he, he you know, my knowledge says he will. But the Rambam says, no, it's a mystery. We can't understand this and don't try. 
But God's knowledge is just different to our knowledge. God can know stuff about the future without that knowledge somehow interfering with the future. Okay, I'm not going to go into any of this. It will become relevant, much more relevant in the final class. Um, but the, the, the thing I want you to take away from this is that God knows things, but he doesn't change. So nothing you can do will surprise him. Nothing you can do will change his mind. That's important to know. Um, we're going to skip that. It's an important principle, but it's not, it's not too necessary. So the question is, it's pretty clear now that God can't have emotions because emotions are an imperfection, right? We've already seen that. The Rambam thinks that we were more like God when we were pure intellects. And as we ate from the fruit, we became emotional beings and we became worse off. So what do we do when the Bible says that God has emotions? And sometimes those emotions even look like they're interacting with us, which would look like he's affected by us. So what do we do? So I'm going to read to you a little passage from uh, the Guide to the Perplexed. This is from section 154. It says, whenever any one of his actions is perceived by us, we ascribe to God that emotion, which is the source of the act when performed by us. And we call him by an epithet, which is formed from the verb expressing that emotion. We see, for example, how well he provides for the life of the embryo of living beings, how he endows with certain faculties, both the embryo itself and those who have to rear it after birth, in order that it may be protected from death and destruction, guarded against all harm and assisted in the performance of all that is required for its development. Similar acts, when performed by us, are due to a certain emotion and tenderness called mercy and pity. God is therefore said, to be merciful. So there's a basically a translation manual that the Rambam has given us, right? If you see in the Bible, a phrase like this, God has emotion X. This is what you must do with it. This is what it really means. It means God's actions. In other words, his causal imprint on the world around us. Remember, he keeps just overflowing and that overflow leaves an imprint. Uh, it creates the universe and leaves an imprint on the universe. His actions correspond to the sort of causal imprint that our actions tend to have when we are motivated by X. So for instance, um, we say God is angry if we see in the causal imprint left by him on the world, the sorts of patterns that we tend to associate with anger when those patterns are caused by psychological beings. Now, God isn't a psychological being. This is just a way of talking. But I suppose you could say God appears to us as an emotional being because his, his actions have the profile that we associate with emotions. With, so we say God is chanun and rachum, you know, he's graceful and, 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 um, and, and merciful. All we really mean is his actions have the kind of causal fingerprint that we associate with mercy and grace. Now, God doesn't really have mercy and grace because he's not an emotional being, but he, present, he presents to us that way because he has the same sort of, like I said, his actions have the same sort of causal imprint um, or fingerprint that our actions tend to have when we are merciful and when we are uh, uh, graceful. Okay. So God doesn't really have emotions. Now, now we can summarize everything we've done, I hope, uh, from the first class until now. So Rabbi Sachs has this thesis. We are in the image of God. We are all persons. What does it mean to be in the image of God? It means like God, we are all people. And I suggested that what it meant to be a person was to have logos, which is intellect, pathos, which is a kind of emotional engagement with the world around us, and ethos, something like um, an ethical outlook, a kind of vision for how things should be. Now, Maimonides just disagrees, it seems, with the thesis that Rabbi Sachs puts forward. God is pure intellect. That's logos without pathos. God is an unmoved mover, right? He, he, 
he never changes because he's completely actual. So you, your actions, you know how we say the word moved here is, 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 is basically, a, I'm using it as a play on words. He's not moved physically. He's also not moved emotionally, right? Nothing you can do will move him, right? Because he, he has no pathos. And God's knowledge is not personal. Um, do I want to go into that now? No, I don't. I want to come back to that later. But just bracket that. There's this big thing. God's knowledge isn't personal. Basically, he knows everything there is to know about all of us, but in a kind of clinical third personal way. Right? He doesn't like... Look, if I... If I read the biography, uh, Lee was talking to me before we started about Bertrand Russell. If, if I read Ray Monk's fabulous two volume biography of Bertrand Russell, okay, I would know loads of things about Bertrand Russell. But I bet you if I met him, there'd be a sense in which I knew him that's different. So even if I didn't come to learn any new facts, there'd be a sense of personal knowledge, uh, like a personal acquaintance that I would have with Bertrand Russell. Um, um, if you think there is such a thing as kind of personal acquaintance that you build through having a relationship with another human being that kind of isn't merely exhausted by knowing facts about a person, if you think there's such a thing, and I'll give you more reasons in, in the third class for thinking there is such a thing, but for Maimonides, God doesn't have it. God knows. God knows everything there is to know about you in a kind of clinical, third personal way, as if he read an exhaustive biography of you. That's it. He's not moved by you. He never kind of meets you. He never looks out into your eyes and you have a moment of joint attention or anything like that. Oh, okay. So here's a question. Loads of classical theists, Rambam included, thinks that God has no emotions because he can't be affected by us. But maybe God could have emotions without being affected by us, okay? Um, and indeed, that seems to be what Aquinas thought, right? And I'll bring a Jewish thinker in momentarily, but Aquinas, very much under the influence of Aristotle, disagrees with Maimonides and says, no, God does have emotions. Just one emotion. We'll see what it is presently. I'm going to read you another quote from God and Emotion by R.T. Mullins. On the Thomistic doctrine of God, Thomistic means of Thomas, and Thomas is St. Thomas of Aquinas. On the Thomistic doctrine of God, God is identical to the supreme good. And if God rests his will in himself, he's resting his will in goodness itself. So God should be infinitely happy because God correctly recognizes himself to be the supreme and infinitely good object. He will rightly rest his will in himself. God doesn't want anything other than himself because he's self-sufficient. God never needs to look out of his window because just by looking at himself, he knows all things. And he is infinitely good. And since he's infinitely good, shouldn't he be infinitely happy? If you were only looking at something infinitely good all day long, wouldn't you be infinitely happy? Part of the reason you're not infinitely happy is because you have to look at ugly mugs like mine, right? You're not, you don't get to spend your time looking at infinite goodness. Um, thus, making himself the object of his own eternal immutable joy. God is just always in a state of joy. Eric Silverman explains, hold on a second, I think there's a comment and I will come to it in a minute. Oh, somehow I've lost volume for the audio. I'm sorry to hear that, Elizabeth. Okay. Um, Eric, Eric Silverman uh, explains. Eric Silverman is a, is a Christian theologian, um, a Thomist. He explains that God cannot fail to be the object of his own joy because such a notion would be incoherent. If God somehow lacked infinite joy, if he wasn't infinitely happy, Silverman says this would indicate that God is deficient in his evaluation of himself as the ultimate good. Surely an omniscient God would not be subject to such a deficient evaluation. In, to, to make this even clearer, um, Mullin says, look, if the impassable God, impassable means kind of 
impervious to suffering, but also impervious to change. If the impassable God were to be moved to experience sorrow for some created thing, like let's say I stub my toe and I'm in terrible pain, is God moved? Does God feel bad for me? No, because that would be a failure to properly evaluate that creature. Sure, I have some value and there is some disvalue in my stubbing my toe, but God is infinitely valuable and he's looking at himself all the time. The impassibilist is saying that God would be failing to properly evaluate that creature, me, right? Because God would be acting as if that creature has more value than the supreme good. Right, so I'll come back to this later. Steve asks a nice question. You know, isn't the difference between Maimonides and, and, uh, and, and the Jewish view, or the, the, the big difference between um, the Jewish view and the kind of classical Greek philosophical view is that the Jews think of man in the image of God, uh, whereas the Greek think of uh, God in the image of man. Right, I, I suppose that's what Maimonides is scared of. Maimonides is scared of, the, the, of, the, of Greek anthropomorphism, of all of these gods who look very, very human. Um, no, God is completely sublime. And yes, that's what you see from Aristotle, also a Greek, but, but uh, not Homer, of course, right? It's what you see from Aristotle, the Rambam, and all of these medieval philosophers. It's this desire to rescue God from our image, okay? So God is very, very unlike us. What does it mean we're in his image? Well, it means that, that there's some minor respect, maybe the fact that we can, we can hope to escape our animal side. Maybe that's the sense in which we're in God's image. So anyway, what I wanted to share with you is that an impassable God can experience emotion, according to some, so long as that emotion doesn't conflict with either of the following things. Um, God's morality. So God can't experience any like nasty emotions. So he can't, you know, like when you see, you see somebody slip on a banana skin and you have a good old laugh at somebody else's expense. Well, that's not, that's not a nice emotion. That's an immoral emotion. God, by definition, couldn't have such an emotion. God can't have irrational emotions. And God's emotions can't conflict with his realization of his own blessedness. And this leaves room, according to Aquinas, for only one emotion, and that emotion is constant, infinite joy. Lee Price is waiting to see how a God with pathos isn't anthropopathic. Well, in actual fact, um, what we're gonna be asking in our third session is, is anthropopathism such a, bad, um, such a bad thing, okay? And can it be avoided, okay? Um, certainly, the Rambam wants to avoid anthropomorphism, which is making God-like man, but also anthropopathism, which is, which is basically a subcategory of anthropomorphism, which means making God emotionally like man. Um, and the Rambam wanted to avoid that entirely. What you see is Aquinas um, wants to say that he's very unlike us emotionally, but that doesn't mean he has no emotions. He has one emotion, joy, because if he didn't have joy, he somehow would be undervaluing. He wouldn't be responding correctly to himself, okay? Um, because, he, because he's constantly viewing himself and in knowing God, God knows all things. And one of the things he would know is, my gosh, this thing that I'm looking at all day, me, is infinitely good. And the, according to Aquinas, the appropriate response to that, and it's not purely human, the appropriate response to that is infinite joy. Uh, Jonah asks a good question. Um, how is this last point theologically coherent for Christians who believe that God has the capacity to suffer? And indeed, the God and emotions discussion is much bigger in Christianity because Jesus suffers on the cross and that suffering is supposed to be God uh, himself in the body of the second, uh, um, the second person of God himself in the body of Jesus suffering on behalf of mankind. 
And this is a, a big, big problem for Christians, especially given the view that God is impassable. The view that God is impassable, that he can't be changed and that he can't suffer because suffering is about a lack and God lacks nothing because God is all actual with no potential, right? That Greek view, it's not easy for a Jew to accept it. We have verses like Anochi uh, Imob Sarah in the book of Psalms that says, I am with him in his suffering, right? We have intimations in the Bible that God can suffer, but it's a much harder job to reconcile this impassable God, this God who, whose only possible emotion could be infinite, constant joy with the story of the New Testament. Um, now, that's not going to be our uh, focus, reconciling the New Testament with this theology, because um, this is a sheer on Jewish thought, but it's a great question since I brought in um, since I brought in um, um, Aquinas, it was a fair question and a good question. Um, I, I'll say the following two things. Number one uh, is Christians who struggle with this tend to make a distinction between um, the Jesus qua human being and Jesus qua second person of the God of the Trinity. And the second person of the Trinity doesn't actually suffer, but Jesus the person does. Um, but for many Christians, that's not good enough. And what uh, Ryan Mullins shows in God in Emotion and what Anastasia Scruton um, in a fabulous book, I think it's called Thinking and Feeling. Um, you can look it up some other time. It's, it's too far away for me to look at right now. Um, um, they both describe, Scruton and, and Mullins both describe how in the, in the, in the previous century, in the, in the, in the 20th century and, and, and onwards, there's been a massive shift in Christian thinking towards passibilism towards the view that a perfect God is changed by our actions and can even suffer if he so chooses. Um, and and you can readily imagine why some Christians would feel that that would be an important and necessary move. But as we'll see, um, similar moves occurred in the Jewish world too in the, in, in the last century. And, and Rav Heschel, He's going to be like a major figure. He's going to be the main focus of our, of our third and final class. And we'll see that shift towards anthropopathism, right? So uh, um, just looking at some more, um, uh, I think in the Jewish perspective, the human qualities attributed to God are more like metaphors. That's right. So, so that clearly we're going to have a lot of metaphorical readings and the Rambam has told us how to do that. Oh, and the Bible says God is gracious. It really means this. And he gave us this translation scheme for how to do it. It's clearly full of figurative speech. But according to Aquinas, um, there is one emotion that it is uh, um, not just admissible, but kind of reasonable to assume God experiences, and that is infinite joy. Now, a Gemara in Masechet Chagiga. There's a beautiful discussion in there about when and why God cries. And at first the question is raised, yeah, but, you know, does God really cry? And, and the Gemara seems to say, yeah, 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 he really cries. Um, so you might think that the rabbis of, uh, of the Talmud had a God who suffers. But then after that discussion, the, the Talmud brings the following brighter, the, uh, which is a, a Tanaitic text, an earlier text. It says this, Tanu Rabbanan, our, our rabbis taught, Shlosha HaKadosh Baruch Hu Bocher Aleihen, V'chol Yom. Every day, God cries about three things. Al She'efsha La'asok B'Torah Ve'eno Osek. He cries over people who could have learned Torah, but didn't. Um, and for one who's unable to engage in Torah, but does it anyway, and probably makes a hash of it, right? Um, uh, which is kind of perhaps a little bit cynical. And he also gets upset with a kind of leader of the community who becomes arrogant and lords it over the community. And what Kreskus gets from here, what I'm going to uh, uh, introduce you to, We've had the Rambam, 
And I want to introduce you to another medieval thinker um, who is woefully, in my opinion, understudied and underappreciated, and that is Haskai Crescus, um, you know, who, who, who stands perhaps second only to the Rambam, and maybe not even second to the Rambam, depending on your philosophical predilections, uh, uh, as, as the great systematic philosopher theologian of the Jewish tradition uh, in the medieval times. Now he says in his, in his classic work, Or Hashem, the, the, the light of God, he says, citing this Gemara or alluding to it at least, he says, the rabbis ruled out God's suffering from sadness. All such verses should be read as figurative. What it really means when it says that God is sad is human beings acted in ways that contravened God's will. That's all it really means. It's not that God is really sad. That Crescus relates to this Gemara we've just read as something like a, another translation manual. Oh, it says God is sad. What it really means is human beings are acting in ways that, that kind of um, go against the will of God, um, go against the will of God for them. Um, it's not that he's really sad or he experiences crying, but Crescus says, you never find a place in the Talmud where they rule out God experiencing joy. So now Crescus has made room for a more Aristotelian, Thomistic view of God. He's impassable, we can't change him, but he does have one emotion and that emotion is joy. However, one thing you should know about Crescus is he hates Aristotle. <laughs> he thinks that Aristotle um, um, was the main reason why Jewish medieval philosophy before him had been perverted uh, from the path of God. Um, and he rejects the Aristotelian argument for a blissfully joyful God. The, the joy that Aristotle gives God is the joy of beholding infinite goodness. And Aristotle uh, and Crescus doesn't think that would be joyful for God. That type of joy is on the same spectrum as suffering, by the way. It's like you would suffer when you see bad things, just like you'd have joy when you see good things. Well, if God can't suffer, then he's not on this spectrum, so he can't experience joy either. Moreover, the joy that comes with the satisfaction of the will or the joy that comes from seeing things you like only comes for things that are difficult and recondite and surprising, right? So like um, you see your numbers come up on the lottery, you're ecstatic with joy. But if that happens every day for 15 years, it will get to a certain point where you're not experiencing joy anymore because you're kind of expecting it to happen, right? Merely seeing good um, isn't really the cause of joy. It's seeing things like surprising goods or, or figuring out a really difficult riddle. That gives you a certain sort of joy, but nothing's difficult for God. So, the Ramba, so, so Crescus thinks Aristotle's arguments here for um, God being always joyful in virtue of looking at himself. He thinks that's a bad argument. However, he has his own argument for why we should attribute joy to God. Um, there's the Hebrew. I'm not going to um, um, torture you with my bad Hebrew. Um, Evie could probably read it beautifully, but um, although it's medieval Hebrew, so it's a bit, it's a little bit clunky, but uh, I've got the translation here. Hold on a second. There's something in the chat. Very, that's very interesting. Yes, there was a, a Steve, Steve is talking about the, the Greek view of beauty. And here again, it's not, it's not really um, um, Aristotle, although you know, Plato spoke a great deal about beauty, but physical beauty um, and the joy we take in physical beauty um, is certainly downplayed by the Jewish medievals. Um, which is part of why I assume um, anthropomorphism, the idea that God had a body, it was very, very ugly to the Rambam. Not merely because having a body implies imperfection, 
because if you have a body, you have limits. Uh, a body is defined by its geometrical limits. And if you have, uh, if you are extended geometrically, you have parts and therefore you're not completely one. There are all sorts of reasons why Maimonides thinks and, and, and Maimonideans think that God doesn't have a body. But I'm sure like aesthetically, it's, it, it is kind of very, in a sense, Greek to celebrate physical form. Uh, Greek in this kind of non-philosophical sense and that's why and I'm sure that kind of informed the Rambam to a certain extent um, does the Rambam reject the idea that God went into exile with us yes he does um, or he'll give it a very very figurative uh, explanation very very figurative because God was completely unchangeable why do we pray fabulous answer fabulous question well the answer is twofold the official answer, why do we pray, is because um, for, for the Rambam, the act of prayer refines us. It's not that we're going to change God by kind of asking for so that somebody should be healed, et cetera, et cetera. But you could, you could construct a broadly Maimonidean philosophy, because remember, Maimonides is so hard to read that you can interpret him in so many ways. You could construct a broadly Maimonidean philosophy that says prayer could have an effect in the sense that God set up a causal order such that um, um, certain prayers activate certain effects. But it's not that you've changed God, but it could somehow be written. So for instance, the Rambam thinks it was written into the laws of nature that when the Jewish people or a people sufficiently like them arrive at the banks of, 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 of a sea, at the shore of a sea, in, in certain sorts of situations, the sea would split. Now it's not that God changed his mind or no, the laws of nature were set up that way from the beginning. You could have such a, a view that the laws of nature were set up to be responsive somehow to prayer. Um, that's possible. But certainly for Maimonides, the reason we pray is, um, is more to do with refining ourselves. But look at what Crescas says. He says, it has been proved beyond any doubt as to its truth in the earlier parts of the book, that God is, by intention and will, the true agent of all existence, and that he sustains their existence by the constant overflowing of his goodness. So God is just, just like on the, on, on the Maimonidean picture, on this aspect, Crescus and the Rambam agree, and even though the Crescus attacks the Rambam all the way through Or Hashem, it should be noted that he always does it with tremendous deference, um, which, which isn't always the norm in rabbinic literature when one rabbi is attacking another rabbi. But Crescus agrees uh, with the Rambam that God is like this kind of transcendent infinite goodness that overflows. And, in, and it's a consequence of that overflow somehow that we spring into existence. And it's for this reason that the rabbis instituted the prayer who renews each day in his goodness, the work of creation. Um, tamid we say in, in, in the Shacharit prayer. He's doing it all the time, as will be explained in book three of Or Hashem, God willing. You should all read it in your own time. Um, so God is constantly sustaining the universe in being through this, um, through this overflow. It follows then that insofar as he, by will and intention, causes his goodness and perfection to overflow, he necessarily loves bestowing goodness and having it overflow. What is overflowing goodness? For Crescus, that is the definition of a, of a loving act. To love is to overflow your goodness to others. And true joy, real joy, is loving. Right? This is love, for there is no love without pleasure in the will, and this alone is true joy. So God is constantly joyous, not because he's always looking at himself. That's a very vain God. No, God is, is wholly unsurprised by how good he is. He knows how good he is. What gives him joy is that he overflows that goodness to others. What gives him joy is that he's constantly loving. And, and this infinite love is what brings all of us into existence. And it's a much more 
romantic theology, a much less austere theology than the theology of, of, of Maimonides, in which God seems to be dead behind the eyes, right? Whereas in the theology of Crescus, no, God is always loving and that love gives him joy and that love is what brings us all into being. As it is says, as it is said, um, it's gonna have something around on my screen so I can read more easily, excuse me. Um, as it is said, let the Lord rejoice in his works, which means that the joy is in his works and it derives from the overflow of his goodness to them in keeping them in constant existence in the most perfect way. From this perspective, our rabbis of blessed memory have said in several places that the Holy One, blessed be he, craves the prayers of the righteous. What they meant by this is that since pleasure and joy derive from him, from the overflow of goodness, and since the most perfect goodness that a man can have is in adhering to God, which is the secret of prayer, as will be explained, God willing, it follows that when this goodness extends from him, he takes pleasure in it. And figuratively speaking, it's as if he craves it. God's, God doesn't crave because God doesn't have any needs. And actually, nothing you can do can change God. So his level of joy is constant. It's not that somehow when Abraham prayed, he all of a sudden felt a... Uh, 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 you know, more joy. He's always feeling infinite joy. But the rabbis can speak this way because they recognize that where God's joy really comes from is giving us good. And that the greatest good we can have is union with God, which is what we get when we meditate in prayer. And that's why they can speak this way. But of course, we don't change God. Okay. So the God of Crescus has logos, right? God has thought and wisdom. The God of, of Crescus, unlike the God of the Rambam, has pathos. It means he experiences some sort of inner life. But it's only that joy, that joy which is love, nothing else. No sorrow, no pain. He also has ethos. He has like things he wants, not that he needs. Um, he, he wants the good for us too. And therefore he has kind of an ethic. Uh, an ethical vision of how our society could be shaped. He has all three of the ingredients that I isolated last week for being a person in the, in, in the ways that matter. However, you might think there's still something lacking here. And I would, I would tend to agree with you. This being, this God of Crescus isn't and cannot be responsive to us. It's like he's a person, but he's not interpersonal. He has no meaningful interpersonal relations. It, he knows what we're doing, but he only knows what we're doing because he knows himself and through knowing himself, he knows all things. Nothing we do can change him. Now he loves us and it's as a consequence of his loving us that we come into being and it gives, his, it gives him tremendous joy that he loves us. It's like Lahavdil, uh, to, to make a big separation. My son, Moshe Akiva, has a pet goldfish. Now, there's very little you can do with the goldfish, right? You don't really interact with it. It's not like guinea pigs or a dog or a... But it gives him so much joy just to look at that goldfish and to know that he's taking care of it and it's his fish. And so God gets tremendous joy from loving us and in loving us, giving us being. But he doesn't really interact with us. We're more like a pet goldfish than we are like a pet guinea pig or dog, right? And, and, and therefore, you might think there's still an important sense in which the God of Crescus isn't a person because he's not interpersonal. And you might think part of being a person is to kind of be embedded in a network of interpersonal relations. And Crescus's Crescus God can't have that because Crescus is still a classical theist. So what you have is you have a debate among theologians, a debate that runs till today. And it's called passibilism versus impassibilism. Passibilism is the idea that the things we do can change God's, so to speak, mental state. And what this gives rise to is the possibility that we can upset God and God can even suffer. God can even go through pain. And then you have impassibilism, 
the idea that nothing we can do can change God. And therefore, if God has any emotions, it's certainly not because of us. Okay? And what we've seen is that there are actually two species of impartialism. Species one says that God has no emotions whatsoever. And that's the view of the Rambam. And it's clear that on that view, God is not a person. Rabbi Sachs is wrong to say that, oh, we're in the image of God, so we're all people. It's wrong. That is to make God more like us rather than to make us more like God. That's the Rambam's view. But we've also seen another impassibilist who says that God does have some emotions, the emotion of joy and nothing else. Now, for different reasons, you get that in the Christian tradition too, in Aquinas. In the Christian tradition, it's because God gets the joy of observing himself. And for Crescus, no, God gets the joy of loving us, which is, I think, a much more romantic God and, and much closer to being a person. Close, but I'd say no cigar, okay? Um, only because I'm saying that to be a person um, involves not just logos, pathos, and ethos, but it involves a certain kind of responsiveness that allows for interpersonal relations. Um, so the question is, can we find in the Jewish tradition um, a theology that gives God a full range of emotions and more importantly, emotions that are responsive to us? And that's gonna be the topic of the next class. That I take it is what Rabbi Sachs is looking for when he says that God is a person. And I take it that nobody really worked this type of theology out more thoroughly uh, certainly in the Jewish world and certainly in, in, in modern times than Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. But what I wanna do with you in the third class is before we even look at uh, Rav Heschel to problematize the, 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 the view of Maimonides and Crescus, right? Because, you know, if, it's, if we can reconcile the view of Crescus and the view of, or all the view of Rambam with everything else in the Jewish tradition, and if we can reconcile it with our religious experience, then why dump it? Because it does have some good grounds. For example, there's good reason for thinking that God has no potential because God is self-sufficient, because God is without need, right? So if God is without need and God is self-sufficient, there's good philosophical reason to think he's unchanging. And if he's unchanging, you've got good reason to think he's not responsive, right? So there are good philosophical reasons that give rise uh, to these two theologies that we've seen, the Maimonidean and the Kreskian. Um, are there good reasons to get rid of it? And part of it will hang on, and this is just a, a spoiler for the third class and then we'll finish. Part of this is gonna hang on whether the God of Rambam and Crescus are really omniscient. Do they really know all things? There's a, there's a question, and I saw Lee uh, uh, raise an instructive eyebrow, and this is why it's so nice to have cameras on when we're learning together, when, when I mentioned this notion of personal knowledge. Is there a species, is there a species of knowledge that is somehow lost when you write an exhaustive biography of a person? Is there a species of knowledge that you get about a person only by meeting them? Um, is there a species of knowledge that um, is required for having empathy and sympathy? Is there, a, is there a type of knowledge you need to have before you can be empathetic and sympathetic? And is that type of knowledge open to the, 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 the sort of God that Maimonides believed in, or even to the sort of loving, joyful God that Crescus believed in. And that's gonna be the beginning uh, of the third class. But in the meantime, let me just say thank you. These are, these are difficult ideas that I'm throwing at you very, very quickly um, in, the in the space of three classes. We could have had, we could have weeks on this, just learning the sources inside that I've been skipping through. So I appreciate your patience and I hope you've had um, some fun with it, um, and, and I hope, I'll, I'll tell you my bias, but I hope to be able to introduce you to a personal God, 
um, who, who we can really have a relationship with um, in, in the final session next week. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Dr. Levens, for this interesting second class. We look forward to the last class next uh, Sunday. And thank you, of course, to everyone else who joined us today on Zoom, on Drisha Live, and on Facebook. Uh, we do continue our full program this evening at 8 p.m. with the second session on caring for others, the Torah and ourselves, Jewish perspectives on the ethic of care by Sarah Zager. So I hope to see you this evening. And in addition, we have many more classes happening right now. You can find out more information as well as the registration links on our website at www.drisha.org classes. And you can always watch uh, the classes live at uh, www.drisha.org live. Thank you again for this class and the opportunity to learn with Dr. Levens. And you. again, thank you uh, to everyone else who attended. We hope to see you this evening and also at other classes here at Drisha. Happy Have Hanukkah. a wonderful Sunday. Happy Hanukkah. Chag Bye. Sameh. Bye-bye.